What in the world is going on? I think that this has been probably one of the most common questions or thoughts on everyone's mind and lips over the last week or month, year, two years, five years, whatever time frame we're looking at. And before I continue on, I'm just going to introduce myself really quick. Uh, my name is Kusai Mahmoud, and I'm a pastor and a church planner here in Chicago. CF is perhaps the most special church in the world to me. Um, there's two reasons for that. Uh, one, some, I want to say like 20 years ago, maybe longer, right? I don't know, time frame. But a while ago, this is where I came to know Christ. CF is always going to be home in my church, um, which is odd because I know some of you guys don't know me, but um, so it is a super special place, and it's where I met the most awesome Rico family, and that in and of itself is, right? Um, but yeah, so it's like I said, it's where I came to know Christ. Um, it's where my wife and I renewed our, our uh, wedding vows. That right there, and she's not going to be happy about that, is my wife, Denise. <laughs> and we've been married for 31 years. That's good stuff. Um, we have seven kids, and they are... <laughs> I don't deserve any applause for that. That would be for you. Um, and they're all grown up. Our youngest is like 19. Is that right? See, I told you I don't know dates and times really well, but he's like 19, and we're this close to being empty nesters, and man, that, that's, that's good stuff right there. Kids out, me and mom get to have fun now. No more, no more taking care of kids since they're all adults. Um, yeah, so that's good stuff. Um, obviously, I am not Pastor Tim. He's out. Um, you guys graciously allowed him to I don't know if it was you guys or him, but one of the, either way, you graciously allowed him to take a sabbatical, so he'll be gone this, uh, this summer, and I want to just say something about that really quick. Um, these last two years for people in ministry have been unbelievably difficult. Me and, me and uh, Daniel and Michael were talking about this right before service. It has been a very hard time on pastors what to do, what not to do, how do we deal with this whole thing that's going on with COVID, churches shutting down, when do we reopen, do we wear masks, do we not wear masks? It has really been very, very difficult. And so during this time that, that Pastor Tim is out, I, I really, really, really want you guys to be praying for him and for Sarah and their family. It has just been a really hard time, and I can't stress that enough. I'm not saying that Tim has said that this has been a hard time. I'm saying just from pastors in general, it's been a really difficult time. And so just please commit to praying for them regularly. Um, pray that, that God uses this time to just, you know, just give them rest and peace and comfort and come back just full of energy and excitement and everything that, that ministry should be. So, um, Really, I'd really just ask you guys to, to commit to that um, over the course of the summer. I am going to be filling in three times this summer, today and two more times, and uh, I am going to attempt to preach through an entire book. Now, granted, the book is only three chapters, so it's not like, impressive, but still, 
It's an entire book. You'll get to mark that off on your list like another book that I've heard completely preached through. Um, and so, yeah, let me go back to my original question, which is what in the world is going on? It's hard to imagine any scenario where anyone is unaware of the crazy things that have happened um, and that are going on in our world. We might actually think that this is the most evil or the most insane time on earth, but when we look at our passage for today, we're probably going to get a different idea, or maybe we won't. So with that being said, we're going to go to God's Word, and if you guys are able, please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. We are going to be in the book of Habakkuk, and we're going to cover chapter 1, verses 1 through chapter 2, verses 1. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are also swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their charges, chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and priests and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mountains and seize it. Then he, his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. Because by them, their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me 
and what I will answer when I am corrected. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You guys may be seated. So we're going to be looking at a relatively unknown prophet. His name is Habakkuk. And this prophet is telling us about some difficult times. It seems that everything around him is at a breaking point. Not only was there a significant uptick in violence, but the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, are the newest challenger to controlling the power in the Near East. But something that we must always remember is that one man plus God is always the majority. Regardless of the situation, even this situation that Habakkuk faces, this is why he cries out to God in this situation. Two times he complains quite bitterly to God and he's answered twice. This interaction with God forms what we call a lament. And a lament is basically a complaint that's poured out to God. We see this frequently in the Psalms, especially um, several of David's Psalms, where, they were, where David was crying out to God, please do something about what's going on. And this lament features the quite often asked question, how long, O Lord? And there's a confirmation of it, of it being a lament when we see the other question that's being asked of God, which is why? The prophet Jeremiah, he also asked why. He groaned, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Habakkuk must have been lamenting for quite a while because he asks, how long, O oh Lord? He's been doing this for some time. Habakkuk's message is relevant for all times and all people. We're taught this when we look at the full scope of the Bible. But the problem is this. How do we take what's happened then, figure out how it applies today, without changing the context or the meaning in the original setting. See, it's all too easy to declare that we are under no obligation to discover the meaning of Habakkuk's message because who it was for and who it was intended to. But see, when we do that, we risk, the, we risk losing the authority and any objective understanding of what the text actually says. I mean, after all, it was this prophet who stood in the counsel of God and not us. And it's the author who must first state what he means to say if we are to gain any sense of what the Spirit of God is saying to us in this day and generation. So what then is Habakkuk's message? And where do we begin if we're going to be faithful to the text? Well, I think the first thing we need to look at is the main point of the text. And we see that when God answers Habakkuk in verse, in verse 5. And he says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days 
which you would not believe, though it were told to you. Habakkuk is told to look and to watch and be utterly amazed. But that wasn't just directed to him, but it was directed to the entire generation of that day and every single generation that has followed. Watch what's happening in the world. And watch as God is about to intervene in a shocking and astonishing way. That verse says, God will work a work in your days that should both frighten those who are unprepared and give hope to those who have long awaited the defeat of wrong, evil, and wickedness. See, what our generation desperately needs is to look faithfully at God's word. Line after line, chapter after chapter. All too often we forget that the Bible is timeless and the truth of God's word has application to every generation in every period of time to every person. When we examine scripture carefully, like, we, like our passage for today, we see some interesting words or, comment, or concepts. Words like wrongs and works. What's interesting is the wrongs are found in Habakkuk's words to God, and the works are the response that God gives. This is the problem, God, and God says, I'm going to fix that. This is the issue at hand, God, and God says, I got that handled. The other thing that we get in this first chapter of Habakkuk is a sense of waiting. And none of us like to wait. And the concept of patience. Oof. Don't pray for patience, by the way. You really want that? We're so designed to have some type of response immediately. Right? I want it now. I mean, we see this in our cell phones in our regular daily use. Even now, how many times do you get on your phone and you're like, this is taking forever. I'm looking something up on the internet. I've got 5G, and it took one and a half seconds, but I needed it a half second earlier. So pray for patience, and you might have to wait for five seconds. Just imagine that. So this sense of waiting is partly what chapter 1 is about. But it doesn't urge us to wait for something that they know nothing about. You see, God would work soon in an amazing and shocking way, a work that all would see. So let us look at the wrongs that, that urged Habakkuk to complain, and let's look at the works that were part of God's response. So just a little history on Habakkuk, just, just so we can kind of put it in, in, in reference of where it is. Habakkuk lived under the final days of Judah. You guys remember King Josiah? Well, literally, King Josiah was the one who found the law, hidden in garbage and trash someplace in the kingdom, brought it out, read it to the people, and tremendous revival happened. 
The people wanted to follow God now. The people realized that they had neglected their purpose. And yet, 12 years later, Habakkuk is writing this. 12 years. That's all it took to go from revival to apathy. And what was going on? Society was once again engaging in all sorts of social injustice and violence. Habakkuk uses six different words to describe what's happening. Words like violence, injustice, wrongs, destruction, strife, and conflict. You see, nostalgia has this ability to play this trick on us. We always think back to the good old days. Man, remember, everything was better back then. When we didn't have fill in the blank, things were so much simpler and things were so much easier. This is like 2,700 years ago. And it sounds pretty bad. But again, we, we love to hearken back to the quote-unquote golden years or the good old days. So we, just like the people of that day, revert back in such a short amount of time. So Habakkuk is continually praying to God that something would be done about the significant amount of wrong he was experiencing in that society. And then as we move into verses 2 and 3, we see that Habakkuk asks four questions. Two of them start with how long, and two start with why. And these laments form the content of each complaint that also makes plain the unspeakable corruption that's going on presently at that day in Judah. Now we might look at Habakkuk and go, oh, what a whiner. But this is something that's important to note. In Habakkuk's cry, he's not doubting God's ability to help. He's really just asking, why so long? Things are so bad that all he can do is cry out, help. In fact, it's gotten to the point where he literally wants to just scream that. And at the heart of the matter is violence. The society was beginning to come apart because of the prevalence of excessive violence. Five times in this book, it's only three chapters, Five times Habakkuk points to the overwhelming presence of violence. You know that Noah used the exact same words to describe the society of his day? And God's response was to flood the entire earth and destroy everything. The violence that Habakkuk saw was cruel and selfish actions of those who were in power against those who were being oppressed. And this deliberate oppression and exploitation and terrorization called for an equally terrorizing intervention by God. Habakkuk wanted deliverance from above because there was no human help 
that would be of any relief considering all the evil that was present. As we move along in verse 3, we see that Habakkuk literally could not believe his eyes concerning the violent deeds that were happening right before his eyes. Just imagine if Habakkuk's day had cameras and cell phones. What was being recorded? What would we see? Destruction and violence were the order of the day, and they encouraged lawsuits commonly. That day also brought about wranglings or conflicts over every sort of trivial detail. People devour each other, denounce one another to the authorities. Everyone blames the other and in this way seeks to avert responsibility from himself. This this description of moral corruption views the problem that we have that's horizontal. What I mean by that is this way. And this breaks down when our vertical relationship suffers. See, Habakkuk sees the vertical problem as the primary cause to the horizontal one. And if at this point you don't see the similarities between Habakkuk's days and ours, let me just give you a couple quick things that I just looked up just to see. According to the United States government website, I don't know how trusted that is, but I figured that they keep records somehow. Um, There were 10,085,220 violent crimes last year. 10 million. And of those, 16,000 were homicides. With roughly 330 million people living in our country, you have a 1 in 30 chance, 1 in 30 chance of being a victim of violent crime. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, there are currently 27 conflicts going on worldwide that would be defined as war. 27. See, we tend to think here that just because America's not involved, it's not a world war. But 27 countries right now are actively engaged in war against one another. How about this? This is according to the United States Financial Education Foundation. There are over 40 million lawsuits filed every year. 40 million. And each year, tort judgments reach $590 billion. Doesn't sound too different from Habakkuk's day. And as we we keep moving on in our text, we see that there's this frustration in the loss of law and justice. Verse 4 starts with that word, therefore. And whenever we see it, we always have to ask the question. You guys know the question? What is it there for? Every time you see a therefore, 
You have to ask that question, why? Why is it started? Well, see, here's the problem. God's law had literally been paralyzed or frozen. The one thing that could have helped the situation, that could have helped the relational, the horizontal or vertical problem, no longer functioned because no one would allow it to do so. Remember that the law that God had given, and this is in Deuteronomy 10.13, says it's for their and our good. But this law had been ignored and discarded. The same law that King Josiah had rediscovered was greatly abandoned by his son. And since the law was no longer the barometer of moral or spiritual guidance, true justice could never come to light. There was a time when evil would have been more hesitant to claim their victims so eagerly, but now, with all this newfound success, evil was dominating. Not only people, but literally the concept of righteousness itself. That's the result of ignoring the law of God. Judah's people literally became their own enemy as they turned their back on Josiah's revival back in 621 B.C. And more importantly, they turned away from their God. Now as we move on to chapter to through verses 5 through 11, we see that God's response is literally a, a challenge for everyone. See, he says he will work, but it will be a work of judgment first. God basically replies to Habakkuk and he says, when you see what I do, you won't believe it, even though I tell you it's going to happen. God's saying that there's a responsibility for the community. You see, you play a part in what's happening. I know most of us are kind of like, no, I, I, don't, I don't participate in a lot of these evils. I don't participate in a lot of the wrongdoings that's happening. I'm not someone out there seeking injustice. So let me twist the question then. How are you fighting for justice? We look at the, the, the issues of our day, and I think one of the sad things is, is we take some sin and we make that our soapbox issue. Right? We'll look at something in Scripture, whatever it is, adultery, homosexuality, uh, lying, uh, murder, I, you name a sin, and we basically take it and we go, this is evil, God says it's evil, and therefore, you're all condemned. Here's the only problem. Did you share the gospel with those people? The people that are in active sin, what have you done? So we can't sit back and say, I have no responsibility in what's going on in this day. Do you know someone, especially a non-believer that struggles with sin? 
This is going to be shocking. Non-believers are going to sin. And they're going to sin in abundance. And our role isn't to condemn them, but instead it's to say, do you know this message, this message of Jesus that says, you are not bound to your sin? That you have been redeemed from sin? That you can be made new? Well, how would we do that if we're too busy condemning them? It's so easy to point out sin and then to go, that's not my responsibility. And yet God says, no, 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 let me, let me tell you guys something. There might be a handful of righteous people in Judah, but you're all under judgment. No one's going to be spared from this judgment. You're all going to be judged. And in this verse, we see that it says we had all better watch out and be ready to be shaken out of our skin when we see what God's going to do about the wickedness in full swing in this culture. It is going to shake us so hard, we are going to be astonished and amazed at what God's going to do. And possibly what's the most startling news in this section is that God says is he is raising up the Babylonians to be his instrument to deal with all the wrongs that Habakkuk has witnessed. This has been a regular pattern of how God deals with sin and, and rebellion. He uses other nations to teach them a lesson. A hundred years before this, again, don't forget, our memories are very short. But a hundred years before this, the Assyrians were used as God's rod of anger. And now Judah better get ready for another assault. In verse 6, Habakkuk describes this Babylonian power, and it's so graphic that it's discouraging. He describes this power as bitter. He says they're savage and they're merciless. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. The result of this Babylonian attack would be the spread of terror, fear, and dread. You see, the Babylonians were completely unprincipled, and they were lawless, and they made up their own laws as they want. Do not miss the irony in this. Judah, who is now lawless, making up their own laws as they went, they're going to be faced with a real taste of what it means to be without the law of God, which results in the decay of a society. The Babylonians literally made a sport out of violence. And God had even warned centuries earlier through Moses that if people turned away from his law, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle 
swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand. Is this warning relevant to modern times? Or will we be exempt from God's judgment? I mean, we need to not kid ourselves. It's so clear when we see other nations acting arrogantly and acknowledging no authority but their own. What does it look like when God sees his own people, the church, acting no differently? As we move on in verses 10 and 11, the Babylonians laughed and mocked at all forms of authority and power except their own. Nothing was able to withstand their attacks. Even the best defense cities fell to their military power. And this whole mess is summarized in verse 11 when he says, Then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing the power, ascribing this power to his God, little g. The Babylonians are guilty men whose own strength is their God. How frequently men and nations miss the point. They attribute their exalted positions in the world to their own doing. But God, the very creator of all, who merely speaks things into existence, sits in heaven and laughs at them. You see, they too shall pass away. So now Habakkuk is faced with their enemies being used as God's vehicle of judgment. And in verse 12, Habakkuk cries out, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have appointed them for judgment, O Rock. You have marked them for correction. Way back in verses 2 and 3, Habakkuk expresses impatience. But now he suddenly seems baffled by the sudden change in things. You know, and I, I say this, I point this out only to say that regardless of the circumstances, we need to be like Habakkuk, continually and constantly calling out on the name of God and his character. God is timeless, or simply put, he's eternal. He's the one who has been active in space and time, created them both, and exists in and outside of them. It's comforting to know that it is he who controls all of history. Habakkuk continues this personal confession of faith in the Lord, and he repeatedly calls God, my God. He refers to God as the Holy One. That phrase is actually Isaiah's favorite term for God, and it appears in the book of Acts as well. It it refers to God's incomparability and his purity. Leviticus 19.2 establishes that God's holiness is the standard for all right acting, thinking, and living. And it was this reassuring fact that kept Habakkuk from total despair when he was confronted with the problem of today or of that day. 
How do I reconcile the goodness and justice of God with his recent announcement of his intention to use the wicked Babylonians against Judah? For many in Habakkuk's time, that would have been just a, a really hard thing to swallow. Probably as difficult as if I were to say that God will use China to correct the United States. Habakkuk finds comfort and reassurance by recalling that God is the rock. This name of God spoke of his steadfastness and his continuity. You see, in God could be found security, protection, refuge, and constancy. Many of the writers of the Psalms used this name to invoke the same images. And this term, the rock, appears as far back as Moses' speech in Deuteronomy. As unchanging and as enduring as the rocks, so was the Lord on whom the prophet cast all of his cares. As we move on into 12 and 13, we see that Habakkuk is actually so confident in what he is going to see that he forcefully proclaims, we shall not die. In spite of all that had transpired, Habakkuk believed that God would protect his people on behalf of the covenant that he made with them. You see, breaking the covenant would not be consistent with his promise, even though God's judgment of Judah was deserved and inevitable. Judah was selected by God for judgment and ordained to be punished for sin, even though, as was abundantly clear, God would never tolerate wrong nor look on what was impure. Habakkuk acknowledges God's divine choice to set up and carry out his royal decree. But there was this problem. How can God appear to stand in silence as the wicked swallow up the righteous? It actually seems as if God is tolerating all that he opposes. But Habakkuk actually stops, thankfully, before accusing God of any wrongdoing but he is unable to reconcile that basic question. And just like that, we're unable to resolve the problem of similar crisis situations in our day. But what we can learn from this passage is how to respond in the midst of these crises. As we carry on through 14 through 17, we see that under Babylonian imperialism, Human society has seemed like one large gathering of weak and powerful. How helpless, defenseless, and stranded were those from the powerful Babylonians. How could any of this be in agreement with the justice of God? And to make matters worse, the Babylonians would actually claim their success based on their own skills and their own gods not to the sovereign God who appointed them and ordained all of their activities. But here's the big thing with Habakkuk. Habakkuk is fully aware that God is, is in total control of all of history. He knows that the outcome of the judgment on Judah will be in accord with the order that God oversees. He just can't figure out how it all fits. 
Instead of a straight line, Habakkuk seems to think that God has zigzagged in his march toward his goal. And what can a mortal do in the face of such perplexing data? This brings me to our, so what? I always say that when you listen to a sermon, one of the questions that has to be answered is, so what? Like, Q, you just went on about destruction and death, but God is still in control, and there's going to be justice, but judgment simultaneously. You got Habakkuk there wondering, why is this taking so long? But Habakkuk trusts God. So we've got to be sitting here going, okay, but what's that mean to me? How is that going to change or transform my life? Well, no matter how great Habakkuk's confusion was, he was determined to wait patiently until he received further revelation. He says he's going to continue to watch alertly from his tower on the city wall for the time when God will be pleased to answer his questions. And as we've seen, just at the point where Habakkuk complained about the morals of his society that were once fastened down and seemed to be coming loose, God startled everyone with more than enough to think about. Now we might be sitting here going, but we're not prophets. We're not given special revelation. God's not telling me what's going to happen. So how in the, order, how in the, how in the world can we be expect, with, expected to distinguish what's just an ordinary occurrence from those where God is doing something decisive in history. And here's the point. You can't be. Even Habakkuk, with all his gifts, could only see the future through like a blurred vision. The whole picture wasn't revealed to him. And it leads us to this. To remember that righteousness is not an optional feature of a believer's life. Because, in that sense, righteousness doesn't exalt a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. We're also called upon to know the movements of men's and nations as a part of his, capital H-I-S, story. Habakkuk knew, and so should we, that God will deal fairly with justice and love. Remember, he is the Holy One. He is the rock And because of that, it should be enough that purity, stability, and longevity are able to fulfill more than we could ask of or think of in a time of crisis. So what we need to do is wait. Wait for the Lord and watch as he demonstrates that in the end, He and he alone is the Lord of history.
And this takes us to part of the reason why we gather. I want you guys to consider where Habakkuk was at and what he was waiting on. And for us, the same thing. What are we waiting on? This world is a mess. Sin, evil, run rampant. And I know this sounds crazy, but there's a big part of us that should say, should say hallelujah, praise the Lord. Because that is exactly what God said was going to happen. And no matter what we do, no matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we try, we are not going to fix this world. Our only hope is found in Christ. And one of the reasons why we gather is to proclaim that not only is Jesus our hope, but that he is going to return. And when he returns, violence will be no more. Crimes will be no more. Injustice will no longer exist. Gosh, when he returns, there won't even be judgment. He will deal righteously and fairly with everything. And we get to live in that and celebrate that. That's why we gather. That's why we come together. That's the message that we proclaim. That only Jesus can fix and save. And not only that, he's coming back. 